I'm London Lopate. When World War II broke out in Europe, the United States was so politically isolationist and pacifist that its defense forces were smaller than Portugal's. In his latest book, noted historian Craig Nelson relates how FDR confronted a nation opposed to joining the war in Europe and won the support of the public, government officials, and industry leaders. V is for victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II is published by Scribner, and it brings Craig Nelson to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Mr. Lopate. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, it's an honor to have you here. FDR took office during the Depression when there was massive unemployment, poverty, and starvation in the United States. How much did he rely on the advice of his advisors before he launched many expensive programs? Well, FDR was unique force in American government in that he believed in trying almost anything anyone thought of. He said that if he had a 60% success ratio, he'd be happy, mm-hmm. which is something unimaginable to hear from a politician today. But he uh, really launched a brains trust uh, of Columbia economists uh, for the New Deal. And then he uh, launched uh, the Arsenal of Democracy, which brought together uh, New Deal uh, bureaucrats with corporate leaders leaders and union leaders for World War II. So he was very tied into looking for any good idea wherever he might find it. World War II is generally considered to have begun on September 1st, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Although earlier in 1938, the prime ministers of Britain and France forced Czechoslovakia to to cede land to the Third Reich. Um, and Nazis attacked Jewish homes and businesses during Kristallnacht while the police did nothing. How was that playing out in the American press? So um, in the United States, we have really, it's almost really the worst moment in our history as a nation. Uh, We've been beaten down by the Spanish flu, as well as the Great Depression, as well as a very enormous bitterness over how World War I ended, then known as the Great War, uh, because uh, people had believed Wilson's promises that this would help spread American values across the globe, and they felt it did none of these things, and that they had been conned into doing it, and they weren't going to be conned into doing it again. So the news from abroad was um, almost didn't have an effect on Americans. They were only really consumed with their own problems and and trying to get out of the depression and you know it was it was so much more gruesome than people imagine today you know we probably remember the depression with uh, men in their hamburgs waiting in line to get bread but really it was just unimaginably horrible period of one of my most heartbreaking stories is about a 12 year old girl in school, and she starts sobbing and sobbing, and the teacher says, what's the matter, honey? What's wrong? And she said, I'm just so hungry, I can't even think about anything. And the teacher says, it's okay, dear, I'll let you go home and get something to eat. And the little girl says, I can't, it's my sister's turn to eat. The United Kingdom and France declared war on Germany two days after it invaded Poland, and Germany defeated France and was poised to attack England. Did FDR fear that the United States might be drawn into the war? Well, he really believed that Hitler was a greater evil than almost anyone else in the nation realized. As early as 38, with the appeasement policy from uh, uh, England and France to uh, Hitler with pieces of Czechoslovakia, uh, he decided that America needed to do something because our uh, defense was 300 planes that were obsolete, along with 135,000 soldiers who were poorly armed and equipped. As you mentioned, we were 14th in size in the world, smaller than Portugal, but bigger than Bulgaria. And our plans were to be able to defend the entire Western Hemisphere with these paltry resources. So he decided that the answer was to dramatically increase warplane manufacture in the United States to bolster both our own defenses and to bolster the defenses of England and France and to make money. And this was a tremendous success, and that became the seed of the arsenal of democracy in 1938. But since he was aware that Americans overwhelmingly opposed rearmament, didn't he have to do begin doing that on the sly? Uh, he, 
he was able to sell it to Congress at that moment in 38 by pointing out how much money could be made and how it could boost the economy. So it was done as more an economic force at that moment than as a military force. But you're absolutely right. He had, he faced a very hostile public and he was very behind with political capital because he had failed in trying to pack the Supreme Court and he had failed in trying to uh, uh, give Democrats who had opposed him a, le a lesson. They were all reelected. So he became very gun shy and he did nothing that was ahead of public opinion from then on until Pearl Harbor. He would launch these initiatives and then send out proxies to give lectures about it and then monitor the response through public opinion polls. He would actually craft legislation based on watching how the public reacted to various ideas. Well, even before the war, beginning in 1938, FDR told military chiefs that he wanted a 10,000 plane air force. How did he plan to pay for them? Well, he was working on the assumption that uh, would become enshrined in economic theory later through John Maynard Keynes, that as you move money around to bolster economic security, you end up getting it back in taxes. And, and in this case, he was using that uh, boost in warplane production to um, reduce unemployment. And it was very successful. And he ended up using this as the key federal policy in World War II. Well, by 1940, wasn't the United States producing more planes than Germany? The people had to notice. Did that ramped up war effort help alleviate unemployment? It did. And uh, uh, by 1940, uh, with the fall of France, um, the American public started believing that, indeed, we had to do something. And that was really the first turning point, that in Pearl Harbor. And uh, were they also pleased because the ramped up war effort helped alleviate unemployment? The arsenal of democracy ended up really erasing the Great Depression. People who were making 40 cents an hour during the Depression were now making $2.40 an hour, and it just uh, flabbergasted everyone. One story I had to cut because I ran out of space was about a man who signed up for two terms of fighting in the war. So he comes home after three years, and when he left to fight the war, he and his four brothers and sisters and his two parents all lived in basically a two-room shack. And when he told them he was coming home from the war, they said, well, you need to get in touch with us and let us know in advance because we have to reschedule our vacations. Now, the entire family all lived in their own house and they all had to coordinate to be able to see him when he stopped fighting. I mentioned that he wanted uh, to really increase the number of planes in the Air Force. What about tanks and other military material? So the tank situation in America was such that uh, the country produced before World War II a total of 33 tanks. And, 33? Uh, 33, yes. <laughs> so if you were in a tank battalion training before World War II, you you marched down the road with the four other guys in your tank pretending to be in the tank. And if you were lucky, you got a least good humor ice cream truck to pretend to be in a tank. And similarly, the Air Force, people were dropping bags of flour instead of actual bombs to learn how to bomb. And this was so common that they became known as Betty Crocker bombs. So we really had a long way to go. And with the fall of France, uh, Roosevelt was able to bring in Bill Knudsen from General Motors, the president of General Motors, to redo the American economy to make it on a war footing instead of a peace footing. And Knudsen immediately saw the problem with the tanks. So he calls KT Keller, the head of Chrysler, and goes, KT, I need you to make us tanks. And Keller says, OK, Bill, I'd be glad to. What is a tank? When can I see one? <laughs> so this is how rare tanks were in the United States at this time. So KT takes a tour of the big arsenal that the Army uses to make its own tanks and translate that into production that Detroit can do. And that one Chrysler factory produces more tanks than all of the Nazi production during the whole of the war. Didn't the Public Works Administration play a major role in financing the aircraft carriers that helped win the war in the Pacific? Yes, well, the uh, 
that happened before actually war started. They were the ones who kept a lot of things going during the military. And one of the things that I found in my research that I was very interested in was the relationship between the New Deal and World War II, that there are fundamental issues such as infrastructure and bridges and roads that we needed to have in place to be able to fight that war. But also we needed things like the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Hoover Dam and the hydroelectric power of Washington State that was built in the New Deal. And they did directly work with the military on one incredible program called the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, which was Roosevelt's favorite program. Many people didn't understand it because it took poor people from the cities and put them out in the woods working. But it was operated by the military. And the man in charge of the CCC during the New Deal was General, who was the man who would become General George Marshall. So it gave him training and leadership, and it gave the people in the uh, uh, camps a way of learning about blueprints and building basic structures and living in a sort of command operation and being disciplined. And it also gave them $30 a week. And they, because everything for them was paid for, they sent home $25 a week. And that dramatically boosted the American economy. I did a show not all that long ago about what was happening in Britain after the fall of France. The feeling was that it was very likely that the Germans would invade and take over. And uh, that was uh, that didn't happen partly because of the U.S. intervention, right? Well, the Britons had a, an awful lot of help from us with providing materials through Lend-Lease, but they primarily had a big help in that they had radar, which was better than the Germans, and the Germans wildly overestimated how fast it would take England to fall. And when it was clear that they wouldn't fall so fast, they had to switch to the Blitz. And when that didn't even work and they were forced to give up, it was really the first failure of the German war machine. And it was really sort of the beginning of the tide turning. Whatever public opinion was at the time, didn't the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 8, 1941, and, and then Germany's declaration of war in the U.S. four days later, largely change public opinion about the need for rearmament? Yes, it dramatically changed public opinion then. But by then, Roosevelt's operations had matters had 1.4 million men in uniform instead of 135,000 because he got through the first peacetime draft. And he had substantial experience in manufacturing because he got through Lend-Lease that was already helping England and the USSR. And he'd been... Uh, dramatically boosting training camps uh, through uh, the arsenal of democracy process, which had gone on between Bill Knudsen and the heads of air, navy, and war. So uh, we were already somewhat ready to go into the war. We weren't ready to invade Normandy, but we were more than ready to go into the war by Pearl Harbor because of these machinations he'd gone through since 38. Did it just turn public opinion around? Yes, Pearl Harbor was the big, second big decisive moment. The fall of France was the first. When France fell, suddenly everyone on Congress who did not want to give the Army or Navy a penny now wanted to give them everything they wanted because people realized that danger was imminent and existential. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Craig Nelson, whose latest book, published by Scribner, is V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't Roosevelt talk about creating an arsenal of democracy? What do you mean by that? Well, today we remember the arsenal of democracy as the incredible output of Detroit, uh, which was sort of the Silicon Valley of its day. And we think of and it frequently you'll hear the history discusses. And then there was an industrial miracle called the arsenal of democracy, blah, blah, blah. But when Roosevelt used it, he met the American people. And to me, the story is about how the American nation, at its worst moment, when it was defeated and despairing and hopeless and really had no sense of a future rose to defeat the greatest evil in human history. And this sort of item that pushed us over the top to victory was the arsenal of democracy and the domestic war workers. Well, there was an explosion of departments and alphabeticals, <laughs> two dozen. It's, you almost uh, 
make it sound like it was a, it was funny in the book. Well, it, it, well, one thing about it, looking back, that was funny was Roosevelt's management technique where he wouldn't fire you. He would just appoint someone to do your job and then set you against this person. So during the New Deal, you had Ickes versus Hopkins in the WPA and the PWA. And I, I dare people to tell me off the top of their head which agency did what and, and who did what. But they were at each other's throats. And, and he would do the same thing, Roosevelt, and World War II, when he would set up Donald Nelson against Bill Knudsen uh, running the Arsenal Democracy. Uh, Knudsen came from Detroit and knew manufacturing, but Nelson came from Sears Roebuck and knew all about how to source different kinds of cotton and which one would make children's pajamas and which one would make tents. So he had this sort of finger on the pulse of manufacturing that was sort of uh, miraculous. And, and those two men were really what changed our future. And you list the alphabetical, the alphabetical names of the White House agencies that he employed to defeat the Depression and Hitler. I'm going to read them only because it's kind of amazing. The AAA, CCC, CWA, FCA, FCC, FDIC, FERA, FHA, FSA, NDAC, NIRA, NLRB, NRA, OEM, OPAC, OPC, OPM, PWA, REA, SEC, SSA, TVA, WPA, and WPB. I probably recognize about four or five of those uh, because they lasted after the war, or how many of them have, have lasted over the years? Well, actually, quite a few are still around, as you know. FDIC protects depositors in banks. Uh, uh, there's oversight of airplanes. There's oversight of transportation. And, and all of these are still around. My favorite story about this, though, is when Donald Nelson is hired and given a new agency, uh, uh, Roosevelt goes, oh, I know what we'll call it. We'll call it the War Production Administration. And then someone points out, he's already got a, a WPA. WPA. <laughs> so, so he moves the letter down one and becomes the WPB. Well, some pretty prominent people were opposed. Probably the most famous ones, Charles Lindbergh and, and Henry Ford. Were they the ma major headaches to, for Roosevelt's attempts to build consensus? Well, I think the major headache was they had to get things through the American public and through Congress. And actually, those two provided a remarkable service. Uh, the story of Charles Lindbergh is really incredible in that here he is, the great hero of the 1920s, really a, a man who came along and did what seemed to be impossible. I mean, he had conquered the transatlantic route from New York to Paris after being an airmail uh, pilot and, and using uh, celestial navigation, which he he didn't really understand all that well uh, to do it. So really, it was an incredible heroic thing. He was probably the most famous American in the world. But then he became so famous that he was hounded by the press. Mm -hmm. And eventually, his son was kidnapped and murdered. And this really set his course of his life in a whole new way. He decided that American society was to blame, and he exiled himself and his family to Europe, where he met a bunch of sort of hard right British people who said, oh, you know, Hitler's going to win all this. No one can defeat him. There's nothing you could do. And he's then sent on a tour of the Luftwaffe, where they do the same thing then that the Soviets would do to us during the Cold War, where they would circle the planes over and over and over again and make it look like there are hundreds of planes when there weren't. And they would point out, you know, they propagandized him beautifully, and he bought it all. So he came back to America and announced that the United States couldn't possibly defeat Hitler. And he's promoting this while Roosevelt and the two of them alternate back and forth, giving speeches on the radio. And everybody in America is listening to this. And it's sort of a great extent of how the American system can really work when it wants to. The two guys, are, are Roosevelt and Lindbergh, are arguing back and forth, and everyone is listening to it on the radio. So the whole American public becomes educated about what's going on in Europe, why we should help, why we shouldn't. And you actually see a sort of democratic force for federal policy in action. Didn't Lindbergh's public praise of Nazi air power lead Hermann Goering to decorate him with the German eagle? 
Yes, he won the Germany Eagle, as did Henry Ford, who's another wild story. Ford, in his first days, was an incredible person. He, he combined different ideas from Colt pistol manufacturing and the distribution center for Sears Roebuck and Singer sewing machines and the meat packers' use of hooks to move the carcasses overhead uh, into the manufacturing of automobiles. And he was so successful that he was able to dramatically increase the pay of all of his employees so they could afford to buy cars, which is an idea I wish would come back. But then he just went nuts. He bought a newspaper called the Dearborn Independent, and he had it distributed by all of the Ford dealers and repair operations and turned it into this incredibly crazy anti-Semitic newspaper uh, headlines as his uh, modern jazz, Jewish moron music and things like that. And finally, he was so attacked, he stopped doing that. But he still remained very hostile to Roosevelt. And it was really odd because Ford plants in Germany were making things for the Nazis and Ford plants in Italy were making things for Mussolini and Ford plants in England were making things for the British. But he held out until finally his son Edsel said, you know, daddy, Roosevelt on the radio said if there's a national emergency declared, her husband can take over Ford Motor. And finally, he got on the bandwagon and joined the Arsenal democracy. What about General Motors? Weren't they also all over Europe, including Germany? Yes, all of the, the American car manufacturers were just like Silicon Valley of their day. They were broadly global. They had, and just like today, Apple and Google have conflicts in China, they had conflicts in how much they were supposed to fork over to the Nazis. And, and, and it really begins the very question of if an American company becomes such an international conglomerate, where do its allegiances lie when things uh, break out between different countries? Did the American manufacturers build war material for Germany? Well, they they built uh, trucks and 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 uh, uh, they they Tanks. built motor vehicles. They didn't transfer into building the direct bombers like they did here. Now Hitler praised Henry Ford in Mein Kampf. So, weren't were Americans suspicious of him as a result of that? No, because until. Um, the fall of France, Americans weren't really sure if they should have allegiance to Hitler or not. They they started to hear about Kristallnacht and these horrible things going on, but it was somewhat muted. It wasn't really appeared to them in full force. And then when they started learning about the Holocaust, many people just couldn't believe it. There's an incredible story where Felix Frankfurter, Supreme Court Justice, goes to the house of the uh, Polish government in exile and meets a man who had been in one of the camps. And he turns to the Polish diplomat and says, I don't believe him. And the diplomat says, you have to believe, he can't, is it, you can't accuse him of lying, you have to believe it. He said, I'm not saying he's lying, I'm saying I don't believe him. The Holocaust was so grotesque and so enormous that a lot of Americans couldn't comprehend it and thought it must be an exaggeration what people were saying. And didn't uh, that lead to resistance to allowing Holocaust survivors to emigrate to the United States, people who escaped the Holocaust? That had, all, that had all gone on long before, in that Americans during the Depression became very hostile to immigration, and they curtailed everybody, uh, and, and the Jews got caught up in that. So Roosevelt tried doing various things, such as during the Anschluss. He combined the allowance for Austrian and Germany so that Jews could come in then. And then uh, after Kristallnacht, when people said it was time to export Jewish immigrants here, he stood in the way of that. So he tried to do what he could, but it was an immigration was a restriction was an enormous political problem he couldn't really overcome. Well, you mentioned anti-Semitism, and I've heard that uh, anti-Semitism was a problem within the U.S. government as well. Yeah, there's a really shocking story about a guy named Breck Long in the State Department, who was the head of visas, and he went out of his way to undermine Jews getting visas to escape Hitler and get into the United States. His own biographer called Breck Long the Adolf, the Eichmann of America, and uh, uh, 
And it was uncovered, in fact, by the Treasury Department under Henry Morgenthau. And even the head of state, Carter Hall, had no idea what was going on. But this was all tracked down and uncovered by the Treasury Department, who sent a tremendous memo to Roosevelt about the nation's participation in the destruction of European Jews. And this led to the War Refugee Board and Raoul Wallenberg and staving about 200,000 Jews uh, at the very end of the war. But really, the Nazis had taken over so much of mainland Europe that really we, there was very little we could do about the Holocaust before the Normandy invasion. Didn't some anti-Semites say that uh, Roosevelt's real name was Rosenbaum? and that the New Deal was the Jews' deal? Yes, the anti-Semitism in the United States cannot be underestimated. It was public, it was vile, it was relentless. There was a Nazi rally in 1939 in Madison Square Garden with 20,000 people in attendance who had uh, gave out brochures saying George Washington, the first Nazi. And, and there was an <laughs> entire thing about what was called the Hebraic influence in the Roosevelt administration, uh, saying things such as that Frankfurter and Morgenthau and Bernard Baruch, a Wall Street titan, were running everything, and Roosevelt himself was a secret to, as was Eleanor, uh, as was Henry Stimson. It just went on and on. And Fiorella LaGuardia. LaGuardia? Its mother actually turned out to have Jewish ancestry, so they started picking on him, too. <laughs> um, do we know how all that played out with the American public at the time? Um, there were polls being taken. Were they accurate? Well, on the one hand, you would have this certain group of people who are very publicly anti-Semitic, which has has pretty much gone away until recently, I might add. But anyway, uh, uh, you, you had this group, and then you had people who sort of agreed with them but were not public about it. But you did have a, a, an explanation that uh, one Holocaust survivor said, that Louis de Jong said, that when people are in financially unstable conditions, they want to find a scapegoat. And in that case, the scapegoat was the Jews. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess uh, the, um, well, it depends also on where you take the poll, doesn't it? Um, was the country as divided then as it is today? Yes, it was even worse. People were politically at each it other's can't throats. Be worse. It was much worse. There was a one, one day in New York City, the... Uh, uh, pro-isolationists had a rally in one part of the city, and the anti-isolationists had a rally in the other part of the city. And both of them end up in people beating each other up on the streets that had to be broken up by cops on horseback. So people were really at each other's throats. And in fact, uh, one of the big uh, historians of this era, Schlesinger, said that it was worse than Vietnam. It was the worst period in American history he knew of, and he called it those angry days. And... Um... How was the press dealing with this? So there was quite a bit of press that were, especially journalists, who were in favor of Roosevelt because he was really one of the first presidents to be seemingly open to the press. He would have press conferences. He would have the press into the Oval Office. He would do a lot of things with them. And he did a lot of testing by having ideas in the press. But he had four incredible press barons who were very hostile to him, including William Randolph Hearst, uh, uh, he, Roosevelt and Hearst had such a hard time with each other. In fact, that Roosevelt engineered an income tax that was so high that it would only apply to William Randolph Hearst. But so Hearst was regularly attacking him, and uh, also and Hearst was he opposed to the the rearmament? Yes, he was. They, they all he and McCormick at the Chicago Tribune and uh, the Washington Times and the New York Herald Tribune were all opposed to rearmament, and they went after it over and over and over again. In fact, on December fourth, two of these papers published FDR's secret war plans. Someone in the military had leaked the preparations for if anything happened to us, including one preparation called Rainbow Five, where we were at war with Germany and uh, Japan simultaneously. And they pointed out that it, uh, Roosevelt had promised that there would be no foreign wars, no Americans sent into foreign wars. But here he had these plans, and it was a big scandal. But this happened on December 4th, 1941, and three days later, everyone forgot about it.
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Craig Nelson. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Craig Nelson. The book, again, V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II from Scribner. He is the author of a number of books, including Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness, and the New York Times bestseller, Rocket Men, the epic story of the first men on the moon, also the first heroes. Um, let's get back to uh, the, the, the situation at hand. Um, you, you, we, we mentioned earlier that, uh, oh, well, that both Ford and General Motors made cars and other things in in Germany. Didn't FDR tap Bill Knudsen, a General Motors official, to help lead war production efforts? Does that mean General Motors stopped making automobiles in Germany? No, uh, we didn't have any control over what General Motors did in Germany, but we did have control over what they did here. And yet, uh, FDR did appoint the president of General Motors to run OPM, Office of Production Management, one of the alphabets which was overseeing the arsenal of democracy. And this guy is a classic American story. His name is Bill Knudsen, originally Signius Knudsen, uh, a immigrant from Denmark who arrived with $30 in his pocket, uh, because he had invented the Copenhagen's first bicycle built for two. And his first job was working on the docks of the Bronx, which I don't recommend. But then he ended up at a horseless carriage operation where he went to night school and with a partner developed a new kind of alloy, which went into the brake linings of Horace Olds, Oldsmobiles and into Ransom Olds, excuse me, Oldsmobiles, and into uh, various things for uh, Henry Ford, who was so impressed, he bought the whole company and had it shipped to Michigan along with Mr. Knudsen, who rose to become the head of Ford. But then he sort of fought with Henry over making different models in different colors. You may remember that Henry Ford offered you your car in any color you wanted as long as it was black. And he went over to General Motors to shave to save Chevy, which was a huge money-losing division at the time. And the thing that uh, Knudsen did was he got information from the dealers and the repair shops in order to figure out customer preferences and, and make better Chevys for people. So he was sort of doing what Roosevelt was doing in the White House. And when he arrived at the Arsenal of Democracy, uh, he had a lot of trouble because both the American manufacturers did not want to switch over to um, uh, war production. The military was very uncooperative. And uh, Newton was a very much a gentleman. He didn't know how to bring out the whip to sort of force people into doing things. But the major problem he had is that if you switch from making cars to making bombers, there's a big delay in getting going because you have to engineer machine tools to make all of the parts of your new thing. So machine tools, uh, if 
you watch a wonderful program called How It's Made, you can see them in action. But if you go on a tour of a factory, everything that's making all the parts that then gets assembled into the car or the plane are machine tools and they range in size from a jewelry box to a house. And it takes a long time to get that up and running. So the public started complaining and complaining and complaining that nothing was being done because they didn't see what was going on behind the scenes. And finally, it got so bad that GM's Knudsen was kicked out and Sears Roebuck's Donald Nelson was promoted to replace him. How supportive was Ford of the war effort? Well, Ford was had at loggerheads because Henry Ford was really hated Roosevelt with a profound passion. But his son Edsel really thought the future of the company was switching from cars to planes. And he wanted to switch over. And he and Henry fought and fought and fought. But finally, Edsel won. And he was able to create an incredible operation called Willow Run, which had very, very hard troubles getting going. But once it did start getting going, it released a bomber an hour and really became part of the great effort that helped turn the war around. But then Edsel died young, didn't he? Yes, it's a very sad story. He had stomach cancer, and then he got undulant fever because Henry didn't pasteurize his milk. And there was Henry Ford II. Did he play any role in the story? No, the Ford II was actually the grandson of Henry Ford, Edsel's son. But when Edsel died, uh, his widow accused Henry of killing him. And she said that if Henry didn't do uh, what she wanted and give the country company over to Henry Ford II in time, she was going to turn over, sell her stock to outsiders and they would come in and run him out of town. So uh, <laughs> Henry, too, ends up becoming president in line after his father Edsel dies. When the war is written about, Important military figures like George C. Marshall, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Chester Nimitz generally get most of the attention. But you've already mentioned Bill Knudsen and Donald Nelson. There's also Edward Statinius, Jr. They played major roles? Yes, they did. So if you look at the situation with almost any kind of warfare, one analyst said, you know, on the battlefield, logistics eat strategy for lunch. And all of us military historians have always been writing about strategy, as in General MacArthur did this and Admiral Nimitz did that, and this has decided the war. But we haven't really paid attention to this other side of things, which is that in order to run the army, you need so much stuff. And in order to win, you need so much stuff in the right place. And one of the inspirations for this actually came from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, two of his secretaries were talking, and one of them said, Mr. Lincoln believes in the awful arithmetic. And the awful arithmetic was that no matter how many battles the Confederate it's one. The Union, with its better supplies and better training and better logistics, would always win in the end. And it was just waiting out and, and overpowering uh, the opposition with material. And that's basically what happened in World War II. You can say, oh, well, there is this strategy and that strategy. But essentially, in World War II, the strategy was logistics and production. And uh, you describe these men as dollar-a-year patriots who relinquish the comparatively mild civil service salary that would normally be their due. Yes, they were. They volunteered to serve. This started actually with the uh, NRA, a New Deal agency that was declared unconstitutional and ended up creating so many regulations that it almost became the model for what government does wrong. But the NRA forged the links that would turn into the ISO democracy because it brought corporate leaders to Washington to help solve huge problems. And uh, you look at the appointment calorie for someone like um, uh, uh, Harry Hopkins, he's seeing every major figure in a American business again and again and again. And really, this whole idea that the Roosevelt administration was anti-business is just not true. The corporate profits doubled from 1940 to 1944, and uh, they probably had more connection with American businessmen than almost any other administration. Well, FDR had to push the government, American industry, to build the greatest war machine in history. Um, did the industrialization end the Depression? Yes, it did. Uh, it, 
really the New Deal had ended all of the depression except for double-digit unemployment, and the arts of democracy ended that unemployment. In fact, uh, America was so well-employed that we had to have a program to bring in people from Mexico and Central America called the Braceros Program. We had a law passed to make it illegal for uh, war-producing machinery to segregate, uh, to discriminate against Black people. And, of course, women became very well employed with Rosie the Riveter. I found seven Rosie the Riveters. Uh, the, the original famous one eventually became a woman named Rosalind P. Walter. And if you watch PBS, you can see on things like American Experience and nature and various PBS shows, courtesy of the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation. That was the first Rosie the Riveter. But FDR had to convince the American public to endure shortages, to work in wartime factories, and to send their sons and, in rare cases, daughters into harm's way. He was able to do that, I think, in a way that we don't really see much anymore, which is that he didn't just figure out how to solve problems and fix people's financial woes and, and defend the nation and increase production. And he figured out how to inspire people. And he really elevated people's self-confidence by doing this. And he made everyone feel that they were all together for a greater good. And one of my favorite moments of this is uh, uh, before Pearl Harbor, and really before the the fall of France. Uh, he wants to try and help England, and, and there's so much hostility to this that no one wants to do it. So he's at a press conference. He's not even giving a speech. He's at a press conference. He goes, imagine that your neighbor's house is on fire and you have a fine garden hose. No, mm -hmm. your neighbor needs your garden hose to put out the fire, and then he'll give it back. And you're perfectly happy with that. If something happens to the hose, he'll need to replace it. But otherwise, you couldn't be happier. And people immediately understood this idea that if some of our fine garden hose will save the United Kingdom, we should do it. And it really turns the tide around. And everyone alive during this era remembers that garden hose speech. And in fact, on our first Lendley shipment to the UK, we did have a big pile of hose. It wasn't garden, it was fire hose, but still. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Craig Nelson. His latest book, V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II from Scribner. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You, you discuss the behind-the-scenes debate and negotiations that went into the Lend-Lease Act. So, uh, what... Uh, Roosevelt did that was so uncanny was that he took sort of baby steps before France and Pearl Harbor turned the public opinion in favor of joining the war. So his first one was called Cash and Carry, uh, and, and the second was called Destroyer for Bases, and the third was Lend-Lease. And in each of these steps, he would put out feelers in the forms of people going on the radio and saying things. Uh, uh, various World War I heroes were called to do this. Uh, uh, Henry Stimson, who becomes head of the War Department, is called in. And, and they're all going on, and they gauge public reaction. And then he takes a small step, and it's, but in each time, he's waiting for the public to turn around and agree with this before really moving ahead. The origins of Lend-Lease are particularly touching because they involve a forgotten hero. And one of the reasons I really love doing history books is bringing back forgotten or unsung heroes. And in this case, uh, it's a man named Lord Lothian, who becomes the new ambassador from the UK to the United States. Did uh, Lend Lee save Britain to some degree? Yes, I really believe that he did, and that's why I really loved writing about him. So he arrives, and, and he's very much to the manner born. He's about as hoity-toity as you can get. But he had spent 14 years overseeing Fulbright scholarships, and he loved the United States, and he showed it, and Americans loved him back. So when he arrives in the United States and he has to give his credentials at the White House, he comes out, and there's a little black kitten. So there he is in his morning suit, and his uh, silk top hat and all of his ambassadorial finery. And he picks up the kitten and puts it on his shoulders. And this appears on the front of newspapers across the United States. But his great brilliance was that he figured out that Americans 
would want to support Britain if instead of talking about how sad little desperate Britain needs your help, that sad Brit that Britain was instead a staunch ally, the first line in defense against Hitler that Americans had, and they needed to join this fighting spirit. And he did this brilliantly where he would tell Winston Churchill how what speeches he should make, and then tell Roosevelt what speeches and what replies to Churchill he should make. And all of this culminates in Roosevelt's idea of land lease. But was, was it intended to keep the United States out of war by strengthening Britain? Yes. In all of these uh, processes that happened before Pearl Harbor, uh, Roosevelt is trying to figure out how we can help the European democracies without sending American lives into battle. So he decides to, he's going to help fight the war with American machines instead of American men. And we're also going to boost our economy doing that. Didn't the hyperproduction continue after the war was over? How much had American society been changed by that hyperindustrialization? So the military industrial complex, which Eisenhower warned us about, uh, was supposed to be dwindled down and our economy was supposed to revert back to full consumer. But, but this by, was the start of the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about in 1961? Yes, we're talking it is. about you know fifteen years later, right? So uh, immediately after the end of the war, we're launched into the Cold War. So we never actually dial back to the peaceful uh, economy, civilian-oriented economy that we were promised. It was dialed back some, but not that much. And so we really have the same, somewhat similar economics going on. We just don't have as much domestic manufacturing anymore, which is a problem. Did Truman just continue FDR's policies after FDR died? No. It was a, it really reneged on a great deal of what FDR was doing. Of course, it would be very difficult for anyone to come in the wake of FDR, but Truman was especially impoverished at doing it. And one of the things he did wrong was uh, he immediately got rid of the people who are trying to fix the economy back on a more uh, even non-warlike keel and just kept ramping it up. But we also uh, were helped a lot by uh, our uh, attempts to rebuild Europe. We made a lot of money, didn't we? Yes. Uh, uh, a great part of the success in post-World War was the Marshall Plan, which rebuilt Europe using American products. So that was a big economic booster for us, too. Now, um, the, it all led to the, the first affluent consumer society, although it's had its ups and downs since. How many lessons do we learn from what happened during this time and what you cover in your book? So uh, historians, we aren't supposed to say anything is a lesson, but I can't help it in this case. There's too many obvious things. I mean, it, it really starts with the idea that uh, you see people who were just really hated each other's guts, Lindbergh and Roosevelt. Uh, when Lindbergh saw Roosevelt winning a third term, he said that the only solution was to take voting rights away from black people and show Jews that if they think things are bad in Germany, what, what things could be even worse here? I mean, this is how much they hated each other. But they didn't talk past each other only to their own audience. They had a public debate, and people could listen to this debate and make up their minds, and it wasn't sort of isolated from each other the way things are now. Uh, the second is that is domestic manufacturing part of national security? Uh, and if it is, uh, why has it gone away so dramatically and what should we do to bring it back? I personally think it's outrageous that we have a big swath of the country called the Rust Belt uh, for decades and it just remains the Rust Belt. Uh, but the final one is that no matter how bad you think things are now, if you look at this story, you'll feel better because the Americans in this story started off with nothing and they became... Uh, pretty much the happiest ending anyone could come up with. It really is something you couldn't make up this story. Well, was the, the hot war of World War II replaced by the Cold War that followed? It was. Are but they linked? It, 
Yes, they are linked, but only because it was decided to pursue the Cold War. And I don't know that it was really necessary to do that. I don't know that the theories that underlay the Cold War of containment uh, and dominoes and all of this are really valid. Uh, however, well, we'd seen it, Hitler take over countries all over Europe. And wasn't there a fear that the Soviet Union was doing the same thing? Yes, there was. But there was only that fear for like five years. And uh, so had we learned our lessons from what happened in the buildup to World War II? I think that we can learn a lesson that if there's an ex existential threat to the United States, we can put aside our differences and come together to fight against it. But we haven't seen that threat yet. We have just about a minute and a half left. Is there anything you want to add? I really hope that people uh, pay more attention to uh, history so they stop thinking that there was this golden age in the past that we need to go back to. Uh, the more you learn about it, the more you see that the golden age is now. Uh, in fact, it took a while for the country to even adjust after World War II. Absolutely. Uh, all sorts of, uh, well... <laughs> And and we're still fighting, we're still fighting to adjust, aren't we? Or of are the battles of today totally unrelated to the ones that we were fighting in World War II? No, we still have the same immigration issues. We still have the same uh, haves and have-nots economic issues. We still have the same uh, problems with uh, discrimination. So no, it's it seems like a an eternal golden braid. I've been speaking with Craig Nelson, his latest book. V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II, published by Scribner. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's a, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, sir. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you are just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We are going through a really rough time right now that began to a large degree with the pandemic. But... Uh, Finances have always been a bit shaky here because we ask people to give money to support us, to support public radio at a time when money sometimes, uh, people sometimes feel that there are all sorts of other places they should send their money. But uh, we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London located at large right now, can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing. V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II by Craig Nelson. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of this station what we call a BAI buddy, $10 a month, $15, $20, $25, $30, however you're comfortable with, for as long as you're comfortable with it. It allows us to plan for the future, know that we'll have some money next month and the month after. And uh, we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI 
relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopit at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when we'll be going either further back into American history. My guest, Wes Davis, will be discussing his new book, American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford. And hope to see you then. 